TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Mihir. I'm Rawi. Welcome back, Ravi. Oh, it's great to be back. Great to have you back. You know, I heard something and then listened to confirm that this was true, which is that you had a podcast in which you discussed scarves without me. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. how many times have we done this? And you know this is like a thing. I have theories <laughs> about true. scarves. I wear them <laughs> yes. basically every day. And so, like, why would you do that? Yeah, that was a terrible mistake on our part. <laughs> Raleigh, when you're in the presence of giants, you don't talk about your height. It's like a minor league conversation. You shouldn't pay too much attention. But we have other topics to talk about. Ravi, what did you bring? So, I thought that we could discuss energy and energy prices. It does seem like we face structurally higher energy prices. Mm -hmm. That raises all sorts of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting topic. Yeah. And Felix, what did you bring? I would like to talk about demography. Oh my God. We Mm -hmm. heard recently that China's population is shrinking. So it's joined the roughly 30% of all countries on the planet whose population falls over time. Yeah. And the numbers are really dramatic. And I'm curious to know, what do you think? Is it an issue mostly for China? Is it an issue for the rest of the planet also? Mm-hmm. Is it even good news or bad news? Right. Oh, this is great. So energy and demography, we're going big. Yeah. This is not yeah. little stuff. Go big or go home. So Ravi, changes in the energy market, what's on your mind? Well, there are a few elements that are on my mind. One is connected to the reasons why the energy markets have changed. And that brings us back to questions of war and peace and Russia and Ukraine. And we've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. But one of the really interesting elements of it to me is that there are so many products that are essentially energy turned into something else. This is true for aluminum, which is, I think, maximally so. That's just energy turned into something else. Mm -hmm. But as we look across the European continent on questions of energy prices, it's amazing to see where the crises pop up. Bread, for example, is more or less energy turned into something else. Mm -hmm. And so how can we begin to think about the implications of these structurally higher prices for what gets made where it gets made, how we employ people to make those things. 
Have you two given any of that some thought? It's very hard to know, even in the short run, where prices will go. So yeah, sky-high gas prices at some moment in time, then it turns out, well, moving away from Russian gas, maybe not quite as difficult as we imagined it to be. I was stunned when I saw the stats for Germany, the fact that they're barely buying gas from Russia now. I would have thought that's completely impossible. And then very high prices at some point in time, and then collapsing gas prices the next. So there's so much movement. One of the consistent themes that I have always thought about higher energy prices is the sense in which it's a positive given global climate change. Mm -hmm. If we want to internalize all the costs that are associated with using energy, at least the way we use energy right now, we need higher prices. The trouble I feel with the current development is that we impose these higher prices in not a very smart way. So say we could have created a carbon tax that would have been roughly revenue neutral so that you don't impose an additional tax on people. We could have done it in a way so that less affluent households with smaller cars, smaller apartments with not quite as high heating costs, they might have been net beneficiaries of a smartly designed carbon tax. Now what we have is just really unpredictable gas prices and then, in particular in Europe, roughly a doubling of heating costs. And that, of course, hits exactly the wrong people at the worst moment in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm with you, Felix, which is I think in general, this is good news for the reason you said, which is energy prices probably have been too low for too long because they don't internalize all the costs that we think are really important, but also because it can hasten the transition to renewables, which is something that we've already seen. Yes. So in my mind, I think of this as a manifestation of basically the mismatch between our accelerating desire to move away from fossil fuels and our inability to ramp up the supply of that with sufficient speed. And the combination of those two things means that we're going to face, in the short run, higher prices for fossil fuels, which is what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. I think I'm quite happy about that. The longer run story is going to be much better because renewables will be coming online much more. Mm -hmm. Having said that, it's weird in the short run, Robbie. Yeah. In some places, we've done more coal because some prices for oil and gas have gone up, and that's terrible. <laughs> but writ large, it feels like something that's quite positive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the stories that's been really interesting to me is how different European countries are managing the cost of trying to help households. Mm -hmm, More mm -hmm. or less, Germany has subsidized everybody. And France and Italy have had the energy subsidies go through the welfare system. So means tested, as it were, right. to try to just help the people who are suffering. And it raises all sorts of questions within countries about how we help the people who need the most help. And can we design systems quickly enough and well enough to do that? The other angle that strikes me as really profound, Robbie, because you think so often about geopolitics, is the role of Qatar in this intermediate period. It mm -hmm. turns out they are the ones who sit on almost an endless supply of natural gas that can be liquefied and shipped. Mm -hmm. And they have stepped in in a really big way, both supplies in the short run, but also really dramatic investment plans, building new terminals, investing in additional supply. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a future where 
Qatar will be central to the world in ways that I at least never would have expected them to be central. And I don't quite know what to make of it. Is that going to be a problem the way it's been challenging to have Saudi Arabia and Russia play a really big role? What would be your prediction about the role that they will play in the geopolitical system, Ravi? Without getting too much in the weeds, the geopolitics of oil markets are very different from the geopolitics of gas markets. Because oil mostly doesn't go through pipes. It mostly goes on boats. And natural gas for many countries mostly went through pipes. Mm -hmm. And the European challenge at the moment is that the piped gas from Russia is not flowing in the way that it once did and probably never will again. Right. And that brings us to Qatar, which is there are no pipes. It's all <laughs> yes. liquefied yeah. and put on a boat and then regasified somewhere else. That changes the geopolitical dynamics because if you're just putting stuff on a boat, there are politics, but they're not nearly as intimate as if you use pipes. Uh -huh. <laughs> for Qatar and for the United States to be major exporters of liquefied gas, that's really a geopolitics of the liquidity of the market more than it is a geopolitics of the intimacy of pipeline connections. Is it right to say, as Felix was alluding to, Qatar's a winner? geopolitically. The U.S. is a winner geopolitically. Absolutely. How do I think about other powerhouses? How do I think about China? And how do I think about Russia? Russia has undermined itself in the long run in very profound ways. Not in the short run. Russia's making more money selling oil and gas after the war than it was making before the war because of the change in prices in part because the sanctions on Russia are mostly European and American sanctions. They're not sanctions from the rest of the world. The rest of the world is still buying Russian oil and gas. One other piece of it that's really interesting is that there's such a big difference between natural gas and oil in terms of the energy transition. We will always need natural gas as a fuel to deal with the moments when the wind is not blowing and there's no sun. Mm -hmm. And natural gas is relatively carbon-friendly compared to all of the other possible fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So the natural gas story seems like it's going in a very different direction from the oil story. Right. I am a little less convinced than you, Ravi, that even in the very long run, we will always rely on natural gas. Part of it has to do with battery and storage opportunities. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really any pressure to rethink energy markets. And now that we have this pressure, there's more capital deployed, there's more interest in new technologies than I can ever remember. And speaking of that capital deployed and new technologies, I'm curious what you guys make of the very distinctive strategies of the corporates on these questions. They are swimming in cash. Yeah. <laughs> All the energy companies are generating massive amounts of cash flow. The distinction that seems to be emerging in Europe, you have companies who are trying to reinvent themselves as energy companies. And in America, they seem more willing to simply say, we're going to return all the cash to you. The story in Europe is quite good, which is we're going to take all this cash and we're going to try to solve the energy problem. On the other hand, you ask yourself, well, what do you know about renewables? 
And why would you do that? In the U.S., it goes the other way, which is what are you doing, doing all those buybacks with all those profits? That seems criminal. You should be lowering prices. Yeah. It's a very curious corporate reaction to this windfall moment. You're exactly right, me here. If you look at the profitability of the oil business at this moment, no other investment really makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of returning all that cash to investors. Mm -hmm. Where do you see promising developments and you invest your cash in those companies? That redistribution sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, For BP and Shell, they're rethinking the mix of how much capital should go to their traditional oil business and how much capital should go to renewables. The renewables part just doesn't look all that attractive given the prices that we have right now. And if you're right, Ravi, that the prices are not going to come down anytime soon, they will always be conflicted. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it ever made a ton of sense to expect the big oil producers to be the standard bearers for renewables. It's super interesting. And there's one other element that I'd like to introduce, which is because it's likely to be true that energy prices in the United States will be structurally lower than energy prices in Europe. Mm -hmm. And add to that the Inflation Reduction Act, which does many things, one of which is to create incentives for foreign firms to relocate to the United States. Combine that with the lower energy prices there are so many firms in Europe who rely and have relied on relatively inexpensive energy for so long for their basic business model. One of the questions is, where is this production going to be located in the future? Mm -hmm. Petrochemicals, mm -hmm. anything that's more or less energy turned into something else could move from Europe. And then Europe needs to reinvent its entire industrial base to be more responsive to the fact that the energy prices are different. That seems like a whole other challenge of reorganizing the global economy and its supply chains. I have to say, I think that piece of it is really fascinating to me, <laughs> which is first, and I want to make sure I understand what you're saying, do we believe that Europe has benefited from an industrial perspective from low energy prices? 100%. Okay, yeah. so if that's true and that goes away, that is really threatening particularly to Germany, but it's threatening to a whole bunch of people in Europe. The second dimension of it is this effort on the climate side actually becomes a protectionist war. Absolutely. Which is the U.S. has yeah. now said a lot of those credits are only available for domestically produced goods. And so you could see not just the result of lower U.S. prices on energy, but then a protectionist sentiment. Mm -hmm. Now, all this, by the way, could be quite good news. <laughs> if it is a battle about more and more incentives to kind of reduce our consumption of fossil fuels, I might be for it. But the protectionist element of it feels like a new piece that could actually be quite destructive. There is no question that that is how European political and business elites are experiencing this, which is this is just protectionism. And now we have to do our own. Right. That would be such a shame if as a result of trying to move away from fossil fuels, one casualty was the world trade system that we invested so much building over such a long period of time. Right. In particular, if we will have long-term lower energy costs in the US than in Europe, then why is it that in addition to these forces which favor the US in the first place, why do we have to tilt the balance even more by now yep. excluding European companies from subsidies? It feels very irresponsible to me. Mm -hmm. My prediction is that unless 
Europe and the US come to some sort of deal, the next response for sure is going to be that Europe will feel liberated to financially support its industries. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Felix, because all this is going underneath the label of a new industrial policy. Yes. Mm -hmm. When people talk about Biden industrial policy, this is what they're talking about. And it comes at the cost of these larger gains from trade and is very appealing to people on the left and the right, frankly. Yeah. But it really has these pernicious long-term effects that I think you're highlighting. And we've seen a version of this story before. In the past, when countries and trading blocs talked themselves into what were on their face reasonable-sounding ideas, but then led to this set of reactions that eventually undermined the entire system. Mm -hmm. There are real dangers of this evolution of policy response, another policy response, and then a response to that response, and undermining of trust in the global trading system. Mm. Yeah. All right, Felix, from energy to demography, tell us. Yes, so we learned that China's population is shrinking. It was a little bit of a surprise. We knew it would eventually happen as a result of the one-child policy and families not having very many children. You need about 2.1 or so, statistically speaking, to just keep the population stable. And China, like many other countries, was below that benchmark for quite some time. But I have to say the numbers are just striking. Mm. In the next 50 years, China's population will shrink by 500 million people. It's amazing. At the end of the century, we will go from about 12% of the global population being older than 65 to 40% of the global population being over 65. The changes are just really, really dramatic. And of course, China is not alone. It's Japan and South Korea and Asia. It's most of Southern Europe and even the countries that look sort of okay, like the United States, mostly we look okay because we have more immigration than the countries that are shrinking very quickly. Mm -hmm. Even for the U.S., it's true that our population only grew by about a million last year, which is the slowest growth in a very long time. What I find particularly interesting about the topic, and I'm curious to hear how you think about it, on the one hand, you can say this is going to be terrible and almost unmanageable. We will have fewer and fewer people in the labor force, and we will have many more retirees, and somehow that balance is going to create all kinds of difficulties. Yeah, And you can also tell stories that are much more positive. So, for instance, one reason why birth rates have come down is that child mortality is much lower than it used to be. One reason why it has come down is that many more women have post-secondary education than they used to have. Mm -hmm. In South Korea, it went from about 6% to now 90% in the last 30 years or so. You can even argue that we live on a planet with limited resources and fewer people demanding all of these resources is actually a positive story. So what do you make of it? Is it a reason to be alarmed? Is it a reason to be optimistic? Where do you come out? I love the way you framed the question, Felix. I might add one other element that is neither good nor bad, but I think that these changes 
require a renegotiation of all sorts of implicit and explicit contracts that we have within our societies. Mm -hmm. One that comes to mind is how most countries organize their pension system. It's a generational transfer. The way some Americans think about social security is that's my money that went into the system and then I get it back later on, which is exactly wrong. It's that's somebody else's money because we are supporting the next generation. Insofar as we have these large shifts in the proportion of working age population relative to retired population, mm -hmm. we have to rethink those contracts about these intergenerational transfers, which seems... Well, maybe neither good nor bad, but super complicated. Yeah, very hard. In general, if we think that this is a reflection of greater choice mm -hmm. because women have choices in labor markets or because of contraception, that's got to be first order great. Mm -hmm. The thing I would highlight on the negative side that you are saying both implicitly, but just to nail it down, is the amount that we're going to have to tax fewer and fewer people to support more and more people is going to be big. Mm -hmm. That's going to become distortionary and it's going to end up reducing economic activity. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. I guess the part of this debate that I feel that is more emotional is that I wonder if part of what is happening here is a reflection of optimism. And not just about choices, but about what it is that we feel about the world. My concern is that this is a manifestation of pessimism. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. confess there's a piece of me which feels like, what does it mean when people choose to have fewer children? Now, it can mean many of the things you said, which is greater choice, lower infant mortality, better contraception. It can mean all those things. Or it could mean a little bit more skepticism about the future. <laughs> and I wonder, does that sound crazy to you both? Or does that resonate a little bit? I would say for me, it resonates. Questions like, is it a responsible thing to do? Right. To deliver children into this collection of societies. Mm -hmm, Things mm -hmm. are really complicated and bad. Right. And should I subject my progeny to this unhappy world? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a bigger part of what's going on here than people acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not sure. I don't know. What do you think, Felix? My intuition is that there is an important gender component to this story that may be a little less permanent than we think. Mm. South Korea, again, is a very good example where many women talk about the three no's. No, you don't date. No, you don't get married. No, you don't have children. And much of that, I think, has to do with the likely relationships that they're going to have as a married woman to someone who might have more traditional views of what marriage is like and more traditional views of economic participation of women in the country. On that front, I'm a little more hopeful in the sense that this might be transitory, that we need to renegotiate what a partnership really looks like. We need to yeah. renegotiate responsibilities for bringing up children. Yeah. This is probably also the part where governments can play a useful role in subsidizing childcare, in making sure that parental leave is not something that is unheard of. Absolutely. I agree with both of you that there might be some pessimism to it, but as a practical matter, so much of that is also wrapped up in expectations about what marriage and what having kids will look like. I agree. One part of it is mindful of the fact that we are three dudes talking about <laughs> this on a podcast yes. yeah. <laughs> with no particular expertise 
one potential <laughs> question we should ask ourselves is whether we're as men just not doing a very good job representing ourselves as desirable potential partners. And maybe this is mm -hmm. a worldwide mm -hmm. phenomenon and we got to up our game if we want to make this an appealing path. Yeah, I think that's right. That's one piece of that implicit contract renegotiation, which is men maybe aren't adjusting fast enough to the desires and freedom of women in the labor force and in all kinds of places. I think that's totally reasonable. I think the government piece is also interesting, Felix. There's lots of room for policy to do better. Yeah. Why not have children in part? Well, because if I don't have a year off or if I don't have childcare that is reliable, how do you expect me to do these things? <laughs> I think that is totally reasonable. Absolutely. I will say on that latter one, the evidence on the policy interventions to increase birth rates, of which there are many efforts, mm -hmm, including mm -hmm. cash transfers to new parents, including more bonuses for the more kids you have, including childcare centers, the evidence is not great. It's not great. One set of incentives that the Russian Federation has in place, which have basically not worked. But if you've got seven kids, you get a medal. <laughs> I think it's called the Order of Parental Glory. Really? And that hasn't worked? I'm so surprised. <laughs> but if you get to 10, then there's another medal, which is the Heroic Mother Medal and a million rubles, which these days is about $17,000. But it's hard to imagine some household in Russia, they've got seven kids, they've got their medal, and they think, well, if we have three more... Then there's this bonus <laughs> that comes along. So oh, the, the incentive structures don't really seem likely to change these dynamics, or at least they haven't in Russia. Yeah. And to both of your points, in Hungary, it's about 5% of GDP. Yeah. It's a really massive program. And it's lifted the birth rate a little bit, but not above the 2.1 barrier. So even with incredible spending. Hmm. Have you two seen The Sound of Music? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that he went from balance of payments to yes, sound exactly. of music. Yeah. The link is <laughs> Very interesting. mysterious, but yeah. stick with me. Just stick with me for intriguing. a minute. Let's go with it. <laughs> what happens to Austrian GDP when Captain Von Trapp marries Maria, the nanny? If she does not continue to work, what happens to her labor participation? Your intuition is exactly right. So if she's being paid as a nanny... That's a final good or service. Right. And when the family becomes theirs rather than his, presumably he's not still paying her. And so Austrian GDP goes down. Yeah. But it raises this broader question about how we value essential work. Mm -hmm. By some mm -hmm. estimates, the work of raising children of managing a household is something like 30% of GDP if we measured it. Right. But we don't. Mm -hmm. Part of the story, mm -hmm. in many societies, we have undervalued and undercompensated the essential work of raising the children who will be the next generation. Mm. The Sound of Music gives us a window into that sort of challenge. Wow. My first intuition was to think about the size of the wedding. <laughs> and that is counted as part of GDP last Absolutely. I Absolutely. We should also be mindful of the fact that there are parts of the world in which countries are getting younger, yes. where there are yes. demographic booms. Yep. And so exactly. there's a big divergence in demography. Mm -hmm. That's going to change all sorts of dynamics. Yeah. My sense is it will dramatically alter how we think about immigration. Mm -hmm. In a democracy, 
where the majority gives policy direction, it's almost unthinkable for me that the majority will say, yes, we will forego some social security benefits because we don't want the young to be taxed so highly. Mm -hmm. And I think the only other way out of this is to allow greater immigration. Countries like the US, countries like Germany that have somehow come to grips with living with permanent immigration will have a huge advantage over societies that find it very difficult to accept people from elsewhere. Yeah. If you then think about the global south, we will have many more people who have access to middle income and rich countries. The moment you have to choose between social security and immigration, I think the immigration debate will look very different. Yeah, mm -hmm. increased migration is going to be fantastic for everybody involved. And I love that story. And I think it's true. And especially your point, Felix, about which countries know how to do it well. It does appear that countries that don't know how to think about immigration terribly well are not getting any better. Right. Japan is an example of this. It does not appear that they are willing to think about immigration substantially differently than they've thought about it before, mm -hmm. despite mm -hmm. dynamics that are exactly what you have cast as kind of giving you an incentive. Yeah. If I can push back me here, it was cushioned by this rise in labor participation rates among women. So in part, actually, the labor force didn't shrink quite as dramatically because we started with low female labor participation rates and then those rose. And now... That's played out. That's played right? out, yes. <laughs> that's yeah. true. But I think it is really a test of a country's resolve yeah. and the degree to which it's willing to reinvent itself. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is what this demographic transition really requires in many ways. And we have recommendations, of course. Ravi, what did you bring? So I've got something awesome. Ooh, Ooh okay. It's a television series that I think everybody probably discovered before I did, but we just <laughs> discovered it. It's called The Bear. Oh. Yes. It's a kind of cooking show. It's about a very talented chef who grew up in Chicago, left Chicago on a grand adventure, and then returned when his brother passed away to take over his brother's restaurant, which is not a fancy restaurant. Right. And it has so many fascinating elements. It's about leaving and coming home. It's about the feeling of being driven in that way. It's about family melodrama, and it has the most amazing soundtrack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's only one season. True. I think there are eight episodes, and every episode ends with some awesome song that sees us out, and it's just so enjoyable. Yeah, that's a great pick. What's your favorite song? The last episode ends with my favorite Radiohead song. Oh, which is what? I don't want to tell you because I want you to watch it and then hear it. Is it Plastic Trees? No. I was just guessing. <laughs> I've been meaning to pick it up and I haven't really gone fully deep into it. You'll love it. Yeah. It's really fabulous. All right, Felix, what do you got? I would like to recommend an essay in The New Yorker titled Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. It's written by Leslie Jameson, and it's just a totally fascinating story. Hmm. Everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. I didn't even really know much about the history of the idea, where it came from, how it evolved over time. But the story that she's telling is completely 
completely fascinating how it's grounded in personal experiences of the two psychologists who first discovered it. Mm -hmm. It talks about the research, how the research right from the beginning was very focused on women and then maybe led us down a track to thinking, oh, this is mostly or exclusively an issue for women. It talks about how this third wave of feminism has a completely different take on imposter syndrome, how imposter syndrome is probably not the right word to begin with because it's not really a syndrome. And then is it anything at all if everybody has it? <laughs> it talks about the relation to race, how if you grow up and you feel the world conspires against you in many, many ways, that that somehow makes imposter syndrome maybe more of a white thing as opposed to someone who doesn't grow up in a privileged way. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately it talks in very interesting ways about the role of parents. So apparently the two sources of a sense of being an imposter, one having to do with if you're not the smart one in the family. So if sort of understood your sibling somehow is just much smarter than you are, I think you're likely to suffer. And also if your parents tell you that you are amazing, that you are out of this world smart and capable and you can be anything. And <laughs> that struck me as particularly interesting because what else can parents do? They can tell you you're not the smartest one or you are the smartest one. <laughs> and then in both of these cases, that seems to be an antecedent of some form of imposter syndrome. So if you have a chance to read it, it's very well written also. Why everyone feels like they're faking it in, I think it's the current issue of The New Yorker. Wow. A hundred percent. I'm not going to read that. It sounds super <laughs> harrowing. I'm not ready to add that into my ongoing nervous breakdown, but it does sound interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, I may have some comfort food for you, Rawi, that'll help you get through these moments. Thank you. So I have yeah. some dessert recommendations and it's been oh. a while since Ooh. I've had a food recommendation. And on a sweet note. Yes. Let's end on a sweet note. So I have both a recipe for something at home and then something to eat out. So the recipe for something to eat at home is Jim Leahy's olive oil cake. So olive oil cake is just one of the great desserts in the world. And Jim Leahy, who's the superstar baker from Sullivan Street Bakery in New York, has this incredible recipe, which has not just the great olive oil, but has orange juice in it. And it's just the moistest, most beautiful cake in the world. So this is something you make yourself. Yeah. And it is so easy. Oh, you just okay. put everything in a bowl. You mix it all up. Huh. And then my dessert treat for you outdoors is there is this lovely chain which has this curious name of the Hokkaido baked cheese tarts. Hmm. So these are a riff, I think, on the greatest dessert of all time, of course, which is the Portuguese pastiche de nata, which is the perfect egg custard. Hmm. And there is a Hokkaido baked cheese tart, which has just that perfect ratio of cream and crust and texture, but is even more creamy than the pastiche de nata. Mm -hmm. Whatever you can do near you that is either the Hokkaido baked cheese tart or the pastiche de nata, you should rush out and do right away because it is the greatest dessert in the world. Sounds Next wonderful. to my olive oil cake. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Although on the olive oil cake, I will just say quickly, Mahir, kids these days hate the word moist. Is that right? It's I like had no cringy idea. to them. Well, if they taste the cake and then you call it moist, it might fix that problem. Because... <laughs> Always an optimist. Yes. <laughs> and this is it for today. Thank you for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. 
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.